Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're discussing Robert W. Chambers' classic weird tale, The Yellow Sign. Before we get into all that horrific stuff, however, what is going on? Well, of late, myself and Matt attended Concrete Cow, the one-day games convention that takes place in Milton Keynes. Mm-hmm. And you run a game, Matt? Yeah, I ran the game of Cult Divinity Lost in the morning. And then, afternoon, that was a very weird event. I got to play! You that, did? That's not natural. No, I know. It like only happens twice a year, and now it's a third time. <sighs> I hear that's how you keep Cthulhu fresh, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> we should do an episode about that. Maybe. Yeah, so I ran a couple of games and had the pleasure of Matt's company as a player in the afternoon. Marvellous. Yeah, shot Hobo in the first ten minutes. Couldn't go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> was we'll he monologuing? He was trying to do something. He was trying to speak, so it was just, it was just the dumb thing to put three bullets in his face. So. How about you, Paul? I mean, obviously you were running that in the afternoon. You, did you run something in the morning as well? Yeah, I ran a game in the morning as well, uh, a new scenario entitled If I Had a Hammer, and uh, I had four players for that, and that seemed to go well. If anybody is looking to come along to another games convention, then Concrete Cow takes place again in September. Now on to our main topic, the yellow sign. Well, we spent a couple of episodes now talking about Robert W. Chambers and his most iconic creation, The King in Yellow, the book that spawned it all, and the larger creation of the Carcosa mythos. This is something separate to the Cthulhu mythos, although the two have merged in hideous ways. In a couple of episodes' time, we shall explore the Haster mythos, or at least the way that... All this Chambers stuff has has merged in with the Cthulhu mythos. But for now, we're being Chambers purists. Along with the repairer of reputations, this story, The Yellow Sign, is one of the main stories of the Carcosa mythos. While the mask and In the Court of the Dragon refer to the King in Yellow, they flesh out the mythology less than these two. The Yellow Sign is set in New York City in what we assume is the 1890s. It makes passing reference to the awful tragedy of young Castain, connecting it to the repair of reputations. But given Castaigne's somewhat questionable unreliability as a narrator, it's easy to assume that his New York of the, in inverted commas, 1920s, was just a delusion. And reading this story, I know it's set in New York, but putting that aside, it kind of does feel to me like it's set in Paris. You know, you got the oh. artist painting in his studio and looking down to the streets. None of these things are quintessentially... Paris as opposed to New York, just the feel of the story made me think of Paris. I don't know why. Yeah, I must admit, it doesn't really have a sense of place the way that some of Chambers' other stories do. Yeah, it never really made me think specifically of Paris. So we have Mr. Scott, our protagonist, a painter. He's painting one day in his studio and he glances out of the window down, down into the street below and uh, he sees a figure, a strange man, stood at the entrance to the churchyard, perhaps the, the watchman of the churchyard. And he finds this figure somewhat disquieting. He describes him as a young man, but kind of pale and pasty looking and pudgy. And doesn't the man look up and catch his eye? Or is that mm. later? I think, I, I think, I think so. He's looking down at the man and the man looks up at him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we get a, a weird feeling about this. Yeah, and as the story puts it, Whatever it was about the man that repelled me, I did not know. But the impression of a plump white grave worm was so intense and nauseating that I must have shown it in my expression, for he turned his puffy face away with a movement which made me think of a disturbed grub in a chestnut. I love that phrase, grub in a chestnut. Especially a disturbed one. Well, yeah, I mean, imagine if you're kind of poking your way at the chestnut or, or eating it. That, that's probably going to disturb the grub, probably as much as you're disturbed by his presence. It's going to make me look twice at these when I put them on an open fire at Christmas. Scott returns to his easel and continues a portrait of his usual model, Tessie. Uh, the colours are wrong, however, adding a sickly tinge to the flesh tones. Scott, now in a foul mood, abandons his work. 
And boy, is there a lot of discussion about turpentine here. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. as someone who went to art school, Paul, do, can you enlighten us on this? Well, it is very smelly. <laughs> um, but oil paints are difficult things to handle and it's easy to muddy the colours. And we get this description of him scraping away at the canvas. As you lay paint on, it stays wet. And, you, you know, if you want to scrape it back, you can use a palette knife to scrape it back. We know that Chambers did indeed study art and writing as well? No, no, just it's just art. art. Uh, in yeah. Paris. Uh, and, and in New York. Yeah. Yeah, yeah reading this, it, it feels clear to me it's either somebody who has painted themselves or is you know is is fairly intimate with the process because they really communicate that feel of actually having the canvas in front of you and actually working on it and the smell of it and everything yeah i thought it, it came across very well yeah but the the, the taint to the colors is it, is quite a creepy one it's not just that the colors are off but it seems to make tessie look greenish almost almost dead which i suppose is is foreshadowing Tessie points out that the work went wrong from the moment Scott saw the Watchman. This reminds her of a recurring dream in which she watches from her window as a horse-drawn hearse moves through the streets. Each time, Tessie awakes to find herself standing by the window. Yeah, and this is quite an intense thing in the story, that she has had this dream a number of times. Once it's been an open window and it's been raining outside and she's woken up and her nightdress is soaked with rain... So, yeah, th this isn't just casual delusion or anything like that. I mean, this is kind of sleepwalking, you know, almost hallucinatory. But it seeds also this incident with the colours going wrong. It seeds this idea in the reader's mind that, oh, there's a connection here with the watchman. He looked mm. at the watchman and then things started to go wrong. But we don't know why. Well, when Scott presses her for details, Tessie reveals that Scott himself is the occupant of the coffin in her dream, although he's not actually dead. And perhaps even more creepily, the driver of the hearse, and this is you know an old-fashioned Victorian horse-drawn hearse, black feathers, so you know, a really quite creepy-looking thing, but the driver of this hearse is the watchman. Yeah, my daughter Emily, who's uh, living in London at the moment, in North London, was saying how all the traffic had to stop because one of those came mm. up the road recently. If you want a horse to on hearse, they're still around. Yeah, my mum had one. Did she? Really? Yeah. Oh, oh, wow. wow. Yeah, I remember it took us pretty much an hour to get across from Newport to Milton Keynes because they, they do go slowly. Oh, mm. gosh. But, yeah. yeah. So you were following it in a car? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, were in, we were in a long uh, stretch limo behind it. Yeah. Scott tries to convince Tessie that this was, and I, I love this phrase here because it just reminds me so much of those mince pie dreams of the art club, that this was just a soft shell crab dream. I told you, eating seafood's just fucking wrong. Really. We should have gone <laughs> for soft shell crabs for lunch. I don't know where we'd have got them in Buckingham. I'm not sure. I'm not sure yeah. how fresh they'd have been. Why would you inflict that upon me? Why? Yeah. Well, you could have had strange dreams this afternoon. Instead of having that massive dinner, and then the lady comes to you and gives you extra eggs. <laughs> it's like, I'm not complaining. No, I know. They're very generous at the cafe we go to. But yeah, in the story, I mean, Scott offers all sorts of possible suggestions about things Tessie might have eaten yeah. that would have provoked this dream, including Welsh rabbit. And I mean, this seemed to be a thing at the time, because I, I think it was around this time there was a newspaper comic um, called uh, Rabbit Dreams. I'm probably getting a lot of these details wrong, so anyone who knows more about it, stop wincing and, and send me an angry tweet or something. But a comic that was about, you know, sort of the weird dreams that people had after... Was it that Rabbit Dreams or Confessions of a Rabbit Fiend? Something like that. <laughs> Both, yeah, both of us are yeah, just going to unpack this shit. I don't know, I'm not going to be God. tweeting you about this, Scott. You're safe with me. <laughs> yeah, so, so someone who knows more about such but, things can But Rabbit me. Dreams does sound, you know, that's that's a catchy name for a, some kind of fast food joint. In a, in another life, that's that's you running a, a takeaway on the corner of New Bradwell, Rabbit Dreams. Yes, yeah, to, cornering that, that lucrative Rabbit takeaway market. Yeah. And this idea of food affecting people's dreams is something we see, uh, we referred to it in a previous episode for some reason, I don't know, can't quite remember why, but uh, A Christmas Carol, uh, Scrooge complains about one of the ghosts just perhaps being a scrap of undigested pie or something like that. Mm -hmm. Was it a particularly prevalent thing? Because now we have this idea of eating cheese, giving you dreams if you eat it before you go to bed, but... 
that's that's all that's left really but it seems like what you ate really influenced your dreams and so on that seemed to be a common idea i mean i can see an element of that i mean i I do have occasional problems with dyspepsia and and acid reflux and certainly you know if i if it's troubling me at night it keeps me in that sort of half awake state that's almost like a fever dream where you know you're half conscious and half dreaming and drifting in and out of those and those can be quite weird so I, I think I've actually experienced this. I mean, you know, obviously not the premonitions of death type dreams that we're seeing in this story, but I have had some pretty weird fucking dreams as a result of food. Right. Anyway, enough of soft shell crab dreams. Can, can we ever have enough of them, Paul? Can well, we ever? We'll find out. When we go to America, we'll have to look for some soft shell crab. Actually, oh. there's a place on the list that I want to go to when we go to Providence that is a seafood restaurant because I used it as a setting for my Idol of Cthulhu scenario. So I was hoping to go along there and get dinner. But say so they are now a specialty uh, seafood joint. You want to go to a seafood restaurant, Matt? Yeah, because they serve other things other than seafood. But mm. I want just mainly just so I can go and say, yeah, I've eaten in the place that I've written about. Anyway, back to the story. The following day... Thomas, the apartment's bellboy, who speaks in a transcribed Cockney accent (laughs) that makes Lovecraft's use of dialect seem somewhat restrained, tells Scott that the church next door has been sold. This is a relief, as the style of the organist grates his nerves, as does the bellowing voice of the minister. This almost has echoes of In the Court of the Dragon, because in that story we see a protagonist who is haunted by a sinister organist who has played some some pretty grating refrains in that mm. clearly not the same organist because that story takes place in paris but this takes place in new york but there are real parallels here and i can't imagine that's accidental i wonder if he was playing yes we have no bananas you, you might want to explain that for our listeners ah one of uh, lovecraft's more pranky moments was breaking into the first baptist church of america incidentally opposite the fleur de building in providence and during a meeting, going up to the organ, which overlooks the uh, the wonderful interior congregation hall, and started playing that tune. Yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. Mm-hmm. Scott then turns the conversation around to the church watchman. Thomas mentions that while out with some friends a little while back, uh, with a couple of girls, they'd had... Uh, an incident, an altercation with this this watchman. And Thomas hit the man, and in the process discovered that the man's flesh was cold and mushy. Not two adjectives you really want applied to the, the flesh of a living person. Well, we say living, we'll come back to that later. You see, mushy, I instantly think of mushy peas, but put cold in there and it suddenly becomes vomit-worthy. No, you had me at mushy peas being vomit-worthy. You're, you're, oh. you're, you're sick and wrong, Paul. Yeah, the fight continued until... He grabbed me wrist, sir, and when I twisted his soft, mushy fist, one of his fingers come off in me hand. So he grabbed this guy and pulled his finger off. He literally I mean, gave him the finger. Yeah, mm. that's pretty weird. It's soft and mushy and just came to bits. Yeah, it's, it's a disquieting image. It sure is. Well, and it's made all the more disquieting because Scott at this stage looks out of the studio window and obviously makes an extreme spot hidden roll because he sees the church watchman down below and notices that he is, in fact, missing a finger. Oh, make an extreme spot hidden roll followed by a sanity roll. Mm. Tessie turns up shortly after, full of cheery news of her social life. As they break for lunch, Scott thinks of how he is enjoying watching Tessie blossom into an outgoing young woman. This is becoming to sound a lot like romance. <laughs> it's Chambers, of course it's fucking romance. Oh. The greatest of horrors to Matt, though. <laughs> oh. Yeah, the, the, this is where Matt you know, becomes the grandson from The Princess Bride. Is this going to be a kissing story? <laughs> you know all that kissing again. Oh. Are you a bit romantic, Matt? Fuck no. <laughs> 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 all right oh I, I i want to see your valentine's day cars now <laughs> yeah happy valentine's day fuck this shit <laughs> cards in general are uh, utter waste of time his affection for her seems paternal oh shit it is and he hopes <laughs> sorry what oh shit it's turned into a romance I, I i i don't think you understand what paternal means 
Either that or you've, you're, you're putting a really creepy spin on things. <laughs> I think it was pretty creepy given the age difference. <laughs> His affection for her seems paternal and he hopes that she will find a suitable husband one day, even if he doesn't believe in marriage himself. It seems very condescending. And yeah, mm. it's, it's this, we have this blossoming romance, perhaps. As they eat... Scott ruins the mood by telling Tessie that he has had a dream that is a reflection of hers. In it, he is lying in a narrow box, being driven over cobblestones while gazing up through the glass lid. Only one apartment above showed any sign of life from which Tessie looked down at him. Roll reversal. Yeah, so it is a flip side of her dream. Dun-dun-dun. Yeah, this is interesting because... This this coffin has got a glass lid on it, and this is something I meant to look up because I, I'm I'm sure I remember seeing some reference to Victorian coffins that did have glass lids. I mean, it, it's not a million miles away from say having an open casket funeral now. Yeah, yeah, and aren't some people still on display? I'm going to say Chairman Mao. Uh, Lenin certainly is. Um, his yeah. embalmed, preserved body is in a glass case in, in Russia, in, yeah. in Moscow. Um, I mean, there's not going to be a reference to that, but anyway. Well, yeah. and, and, and in London, uh, if you go to UCL, you can see the preserved remains of Jeremy Bentham, the utilitarian philosopher there. Yeah, my daughter walks past him quite regularly Yeah, that, on the way that, to the university library. Though that's a particularly weird one, because they have his preserved body there, but his face became so gruesome that they cut it off and replaced it with a wax head. Mm. But they have his head preserved elsewhere, and apparently every now and then when they have special meetings... Uh, of I, I guess the the management team of, of UCL they bring his head out and and put it there so that he can attend the meeting it's not in a brain cylinder or no 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 they don't put wires in it and turn it on no 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 that doesn't happen <laughs> no no I mean that, that that would just be silly that would be but I have a scenario idea about that. <laughs> we all just did <laughs> Jeremy Bentham lives when the horses stopped, Scott closed his eyes in fear. When he opened them again, the watchman was staring down through the glass lid. Oh, he's a creepy guy. So they, he looks out the window and he sees the guy in the street and makes that contact with him. And now he's like looking at him in his own coffin. What's up with that? Yeah. It's just a voyeur, that's all. Sneaking into people's dreams, watching them in their coffin. So recounting this dream upsets Tessie so much that Scott has to hold on to her until she stops trembling. When she finally does so, she confesses that she loves Scott. Oh! (laughs) You're you're getting your romance. God damn it! There's there's no escape, Matt. It's it's a Chambers story, there's a romance. The only thing that stops this from being the archetypal Chambers romance, you've got the older artist, American artist, you've got the younger woman, who I think is probably a teenager in this. Teenage girl. Yep. Um... There are only two factors that stop this from being the archetypal Chambers romance. One is not love at first sight. Because, and it's not in Paris. Uh, yeah, in and, she's, and she's not French. Yeah. yeah. If it were those two, yes, I mean, this would be like half of his, oh, well, probably more than half of his stories. <laughs> so Scott's first impulse is to laugh this off, but instead he is overcome by another uh, drive and, and kisses her instead. Cut scene to me in the bed with the grandfather sitting next to me, kind of face palming again and again. <laughs> Princess Bride, Paul. Princess Bride. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> On a late night walk, Scott wonders if he's capable of caring for Tessie since his great love Sylvia died three years ago and he's buried in Brittany. So, there is a French girl in this somewhere, after all. Yes, and, oh, and he yeah. probably did fall in love with her at first sight. So, <sighs> so it's, it's kind of Chambers cliché after the fact. Uh. I wonder if that's part of what put me on to this being in France. Yes. Yeah, because we've got that mm. reference to Brittany. And also, that's quite a specific detail about somebody who died who doesn't come into the story, aside from this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing, because there are characters called Sylvia all the way through The King in Yellow. Scott believes that he's too broken for an innocent like Tessie and that if they marry, he will make her unhappy over time. There's a man with some confidence issues. (laughs) That's the least of his his issues. Now, Scott goes out in the street and he passes the watchman. The man speaks to him, his voice driving Scott into a rage. 
It filled my head, that muttering sound, like thick, oily smoke from a fat-rendering vat, or an odour of noisome decay. And dear God, is that an image. It's one of these wonderful bits of description where you know, it doesn't actually perhaps give you enough to you know, accurately picture or you know, hear in your head what it sounds like. But on the other hand, it is so evocative and produces such a visceral response that it conveys that feeling of horror perfectly. But that's not all he said. No, later in bed, Iron Scott is trying to piece together the words the man said because he, I mean, he heard the man talk, but he couldn't quite make out what he said at the time. But, but there, lying in bed afterwards, unable to sleep, he pieces it together. And the man, over and over again, was saying, Have you found the yellow sign? You know, if you go looking for on Google for yellow sign, you get lots of images of Australian road signs like Kangaroo Crossing. <laughs> or other bizarre road signs. Well, that's clearly yeah. what he meant. He didn't have Google then. Uh, that's where he went wrong. Yeah. Like the, the, um, and, and he probably didn't have road signs. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the other thing, of course, that comes to mind is that um, yeah, the Spanish for yellow uh-huh. is Amarillo. Right. So oh. is, is he really asking, do you know the way to Amarillo? But anyway, the following morning, Tessie arrives. With the change in their relationship... Uh, she no longer feels comfortable modelling nude. Scott finds a costume for her. When he finds a costume for her, it seems to be a gift, actually. You know, when I first read this, what follows next seemed a bit strange. But it does seem like he has gone out of his way to make a present of this. Rather nice costume to her. But, yeah, I mean, this is, I, I think, uh, quite a nice character bit as well. That you do have this change in their relationship. That Scott is uh, ruining the fact that he has change the nature of their relationship and he makes some passing comment to how he no longer has you know the best nude model he'd ever worked with yeah because she's just not comfortable posing for him anymore or not not naked yeah tessie reciprocates in return for the costume she gives scott a present as well something she found some time ago something she found in the street she failed to trace the owner and she now feels free to give it to scott here you are my love is this little box of thing that I found in the street. Great. Have some street treasure. Yeah, street <laughs> treasure. You know they're artists, they can't afford any decent <laughs> Well, it's a bit weird, but yeah. I opened the box. On the pink cotton inside lay a clasp of black onyx, on which was inlaid a curious symbol or letter in gold. It was neither Arabic nor Chinese, nor, as I found afterwards, did it belong to any human script. That's an interesting choice of words. Human script. Mm. Well, we were talking before in an earlier episode about whether the King and Yellow stories were fundamentally gothic stories with a a bit of cosmic horror window dressing. Yeah, I think we pretty much concurred that they were. On the other hand, I mean, you do have these elements like the spires of Carcosa rising behind the moons and the twin suns that dip into the Lake of Harley, and now this symbol that is not of any human script. And they do give glimpses into this world beyond, this very alien thing. Tessie mentions the night she found it was when she first had her troubling dream. We're seeing some connections developing here. Mm. Yeah, we sure are. So she finds this thing and then she has the dreams. Hmm. Yes, and then they start spreading like a contagion to Scott. It's, yeah, this is all getting weird. The very next day, Scott falls whilst uh, moving a framed canvas and injures both his wrists. Unable to paint, he seeks some other distraction. Picking through his bookshelves, he comes across a book. Bound in serpent skin, the king in yellow. Yeah, and this is quite a creepy moment because this is not a book that he has bought. In fact, he knows of its evil reputation. He's alarmed by its presence there. I stared at the poisonous yellow binding as I would at a snake. It would be fairly creepy that we all have vast amounts of books in our houses and we're probably all fairly used to coming across books on our shelves that we forgot we bought or you know, haven't looked at for a long time. But in this case, this is a book that you know Scott knows well. He knows the reputation of it. He knows 
the danger that it presents or you know that it's re- reputed to present and there it is on his shelf something that he didn't put there and that that sounds really quite terrifying that seems like an everyday occurrence to me i frequently look at my bookshelves and go what the hell's that i'll pick it out and think oh i didn't realize i had that supplement for cobbles ate my baby <laughs> okay. oh i didn't yeah. realize i had every other world of darkness book on my bookshelf that took all, 19 years to finally get all 500 and something of them what is it you posted them on facebook this week yes over 560 of them and that's just for the original run, let alone the uh, <laughs> New World of Darkness or Chronicles of Darkness that follow after that. Whoa. So you got more than that? Oh, yeah, I've probably got... Someone asked me um, how much I think I've got, and it must be somewhere in the region of 2,000 RPG books at least. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Any of them bound in serpent skin? Uh, no. <laughs> Not yet? Not yet, but I'm Not working yet. on it. <laughs> we should have suggested that to Chaosium as a limited edition for the Two-Headed Serpent. Brum, tsh, that'd be a good one. I'm not sure how I feel about books bound in snakeskin. Oh, it's quite. It's got a nice texture to it. Yeah, it's almost, almost a bit like crocodile feels skin. nice as well. I've, yeah. got, I've got a velvet book, and I've, I've already got one of them. Yeah, but there's no animal coated in velvet. <laughs> is I, that, is that? <laughs> I guess if you took skin that had been shed by a snake and then just bound it over and over again okay, it, would, it would look pretty shitty but, right? <laughs> but it would be more ethical Yeah. anyway Tessie is not frightened by the presence of the book and in fact seems amused by the whole thing she grabs it away from scott and dances off and and hides very successfully in the house goes into a, a cupboard or something like that and, and just vanishes out of sight with I, the king in yellow i suddenly feel a lot of empathy for tessie because she'd done exactly what i would have done none of this pussyfooting around going oh this horrible book up on the shelf no give me give me give me read the <laughs> knowledge come on <laughs> yes but but what is the effect that it has on her it's all right. No, it isn't. <laughs> she ends up perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird to me that Scott takes a while to find her because I don't picture his house or his apartment being like massive. But by the time he finds Tessie, the book is lying at her feet and she is in shock. He carries her and the book back to the painting studio. And as Tessie lies in a fugue state, Scott also reads the book. Now this, we've had a good example of how he got a crit spot hidden earlier. Mm-hmm. That was evidently a fumble. His dice got revenge. Couldn't find her in such a relatively small place. Oh, I see. Yes, yes. But yes, he tells us of what he reads. Oh, the sin of writing such words. Words which are as clear as crystal, limpid and musical as bubbling springs. Words which sparkle and glow like the poisoned diamonds of the Medicis. Oh, the wickedness, the hopeless damnation of a soul who could fascinate and paralyse human creatures with such words. Words understood by the ignorant and wise alike. Words which are more precious than jewels, more soothing than heavenly music, more awful than death itself. That's pretty damn evocative. It is. It also is very reminiscent of the description of the yellow book from the picture of Dorian Gray. Mm. I really like that description because we hear a lot in passing in these King in Yellow stories about the poisonous beauty of the King in Yellow. But there's this idea that part of its appeal is its simplicity. Otherwise, I'd probably think of the play as being fairly Baroque and you know, complex and so on. But this idea that the words are simple and could be understood by the ignorance and wise alike, that they, they are direct, they somehow just resonate with you whoever you are Mm. makes me wonder whether you even need to be able to read for it to have an effect oh that's why it has um, at least in the description for the tome in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook it mentions that a lot of them have the yellow sign on the front cover and even that has an effect just when you look at it the first time Mm. Mm. Tessie begs Scott to throw away the clasp which the two now know is the yellow sign again more connections being drawn here But Scott refuses, and instead, the two talk into the night. We murmured to each other of the king and the pallid mask, and midnight sounded from the misty spires in the fog-wrapped city. We spoke of Hastur and of Casilda, while outside the fog rolled against the blank window panes, as the cloud waves roll and break on the shores of Harley. 
I think this is actually quite an important little snippet here for the way the Carcosa mythos has, has developed and other people have picked it up. Because this is one of the examples we see of how, maybe subjectively, maybe objectively, reading The King in Yellow is breaking the barrier between fiction and reality. That we have hints of Carcosa here, these misty spires, the fog-wrapped city, that are appearing outside the window of this New York studio or apartment. This is the bleeding through of Carcosa into our reality just through reading the play. And this is probably the archetypal effect that we see in just about everything that's come to follow. And we get this poetic imagery of cloud waves rolling and breaking on the shores of Harley, which, if taken literally, imply that Harley is a lake made of cloud. But I'm not sure it necessarily means that, but that's what people yeah. have taken it to mean. Yeah, or alternatively, that it's like a thick fog that blankets the surface. Yeah, like. yeah. But interestingly, Carcosa doesn't get a mention here. Mm. The, no, the word Carcosa doesn't appear in the story. Yeah, I think the only connection, again, but this might be drawn from what other people have subsequently drawn since, is where it mentions about the fog-wrapped city. That could be interpreted as Carcosa, or it could just be a reference yeah. to New York around them. Yeah, or, or it could even be one of the other cities or places mentioned in the other King in the Yellow stories. Yeah. And it could Hasta, be Hasta, Allah. Yeah. yeah. I think given what we know from the other stories, yeah, yeah, it could be anything, but it seems like, you know, if we were going to put a name to it, it's probably Carcosa. And after this reading, I mean, the two carry on, but now the play has changed them, this realisation has changed them so much that they no longer even need words to communicate with each other. They are now inside each other's minds, sharing their thoughts. For we had understood the mystery of the Hyades, and the Phantom of Truth was laid. What does that mean, the Phantom of Truth was laid? Yeah, well, laid, I mean, like, you know, laid putting a rest. corpse laid to rest, yeah. But, you know, the Phantom of Truth being laid, I, it depends what you mean by the Phantom of Truth there, because the Phantom of Truth, if you take Phantom to be a ghost, does that mean that Truth has died, and that there's something else that's taken its place, or is it some kind of avatar or embodiment of truth? Either way, you know, it being laid to rest seems to be quite an important thing. It just comes to mind to me um, the way that John Tynes approached to this subject in the adaptation he did or the inspiration adaptation of his uh, film The Yellow Sign that he did with um, Aaron Vanek. That he describes Carcosa as being this, in this invisible world and that it's the one true city of which all our cities are shadows of to coin the phrase from amber that they're all reflections well if that means that this phantom of truth is the almost like the lens that we see the world through thinking that things are as they are but as that is put to rest we see the real truth what is beyond us in this invisible world and we see what the world really is like this carcosa environment hmm. so it might just be a poetical way of saying seeing things for how they really are it could be, or it could mean the, the polar opposite. It is a tantalisingly ambiguous phrase. Yeah, but I like you can put so many different and uh, different mm. reasonings on it. It is a wonderfully evocative. Well, and also, I mean, we've got this whole idea of them having understood the mystery of the Hyades, and this seems to be integral to the fact that they can now speak to each other without words, and possibly to what's about to happen to them. So this decoding or understanding of the mystery that lies within Act 2 of The King in Yellow is transformative. As they commune, the gloom grows oppressive and they hear the sound of wheels outside the window. They see the black hearse arrive and know that no locks will keep out the creature that has come for the yellow sign. The bolts rot at the watchman's touch as he enters. Yes, this figure they saw in the street, this pallid watchman, he's the one that's coming for the yellow sign. Yeah, and, and this whole idea of the bolts rotting, I mean, bolts tend to be metal things. And we're not told that they rust or anything like that. Yeah, these metal bolts rot. I mean, that as an essence of corruption, as the power of whatever it is that this watchman carries with him, that's strong. Even minus a finger, he can still rot metal. <laughs> Rust monster. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. It was only when I felt him envelop me in his cold, soft grasp that I cried out and struggled with deadly fury. 
but my hands were useless, and he tore the onyx clasp from my coat and struck me full in the face. Then, as I fell, I heard Tessie's soft cry, and her spirit fled to God. And even while falling, I longed to follow her, for I knew that the king in yellow had opened his tattered mantle, and there was only Christ to cry to now. Kind of a bit of a letdown. She gets an off-screen death. What do we think has happened here? Because her death doesn't necessarily seem to be as a result of violence. We've got this death-like figure that turns up that can rot metal. I'm sure, you know, Scott struggles with him a bit. But it seems like Tessie's death is something that happens concurrently with that, or at least as he's falling to the ground, it's a very sudden thing. We aren't told that the figure goes over and pummels her or strangles her or anything like that. It's just her spirit flees. I'm going to punch you so hard, your girlfriend's going to die. (laughs) (laughs) So I do kind of read it in my mind. The picture I have is of Scott being struck by the uh, watchman. He he describes he's fallen down and... and, uh, Oh, no, he says, as I fell. As I fell. Yeah, okay, so So that's happening concurrently. Yeah, I think... I don't see an issue with that. The the watchman could then have attacked Tessie. He's knocked him over as he's fallen to the floor. The watchman, how I'm picturing it, he's attacked Tessie and and then Scott hears her dying cry. Um, So it's not really, it's not clear, but it could be either. It could be anything. Yeah, I, I, I find it more evocative to sort of picture it as being something more supernatural, something weirder than just violence. He enters a long, slow-mo fall, <laughs> at which time the rest of the camera's playing out behind in real-time speed. She gets beaten the shit out of and finally they have <laughs> land on the deck together. So, so basically this, this entire scene is shot in bullet time. Oh, yeah. Finally, we learn that Scott has been recounting this whole tale from his deathbed. There was absolutely no dialogue whatsoever with anyone sat by his bed, so they've been incredibly patient listeners <laughs> all this time, not even interjecting once. Those who heard his screams burst into the apartment to find two dead bodies and one dying man. The doctor said as he pointed to a horrible decomposed heap on the floor, the livid corpse of the watchman from the church. I have no theory, no explanation. That man must have been dead for months. And months would tie in then with when Tessie found the yellow sign. Yeah, indeed. And then Scott dies mid-sentence. Wishing that the priest would... Err. <laughs> well, what's an err? The priest would... Err. <laughs> that was him dying. So, so, so now we know that the sound of an M dash is err. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm never going I'm to be it. able to read a Call of Cthulhu supplement the same way. Because I it to life. The, they're just filled with M dashes. So yeah. every time now you're reading a Call of Cthulhu supplement and you see an M dash in there, listeners, just mentally pronounce it as... Uh, I was thinking, there's, there's loads of them in Stephen King stories. Is there? Yeah, loads of them. So that's that's going to put a whole new hang on it for me. <laughs> so there he is. He's kicked the bucket. Uh, they're all dead now, apart from the Doctor, of course. So, so, so what the hell happened there? Well, the watchman came for the yellow sign, right? So this strange figure that they saw out in the street, who has been dead for several months, a couple of months, when the artist Scott sees him, as soon as he sees him and he sort of meets eyes with him, his life seems to be cursed. He starts, he can't paint anymore. His paintings go wrong. He starts to have bad dreams. Tessie has found this, well, what we know is the yellow sign, this brooch. Well, well, except that seemed to be the incident that started the whole thing off. For her. Yeah, yeah. well, well, actually for everything. For everybody, perhaps. Because, I mean, if we think about the chronology of this, it seems to start off with Tessie finding the yellow sign in the street. This then corresponds roughly with the time that the, the watchman appears to have died. I mean, she immediately starts having her dreams, but it's not until sometime after that that she tells Scott about this, and at that point her dreams infect his... And then she gives him the yellow sign. He finds the king in yellow. They enter a shared state of madness. And then they meet their doom. Yeah, so if I was doing this as a scenario, I've kind of got that. I'd want to sort of dig back to say, well, where did those things start? So she finds the clasp with the yellow sign on it. And there's the watchman. 
but the watchman comes for the yellow sign. They seem to be connected. So did the yellow sign, this clasp, belong to the watchman when he was alive? Mm. And has he returned from the dead to reclaim it? Because those two things seem to happen. She found the clasp a couple of months ago. He died a couple of months ago. And did he put it in her path for her to find it, perhaps, mm. as a trap? Another possible interpretation that occurs to me is that it becomes a curse almost like the one in M.R. James's Passing the Runes, where you have this object, the yellow sign. Now that it's passed down, it's gone to Scott, who has in turn died. You know, maybe this is what happened to the Watchman. Maybe he went through this entire thing himself. And now when the yellow sign found its way into a new pair of hands, then he was called forth from his grave to go off and deliver some kind of horrible fate to those who interacted with it. And that, you know, maybe we're about to see all this replay with Scott. And when he reclaims the, the clasp, the yellow sign, it seems like the king in yellow manifests mm. in some way and is witnessed by Scott. The whole idea of the yellow sign being this found curse, it seems in a lot of ways to almost uh, presage a lot of the tropes of J-horror from the, the 2000s, where you've got films like uh, The Grudge, or particularly The Ring, where people encounter cursed objects or cursed locations or are just unlucky enough to stumble across some intrusion of the unnatural into the everyday world, and as a result are just marked for death. Mm. And have you, you know, seen the yellow sign? I mean, this weird VHS tape. Yeah, exactly. In a lot of ways, it is almost the same thing. But I think Chambers sows these seeds through the story, but it's quite apparent as a reader, as you go through, you think you're being clever by kind of linking these things up. And they are loosely linked, but quite how they're linked is ill-defined. But as a reader, I go through and I, I make these links in my head, you know, mm. between the, the Watchman and the Phantom of Truth, between him and the Yellow Sign, between them and Blake of Harley and all these other things all sort of come together in whatever way you put them together in your head. But inevitably, you do kind of do that, I think. Yeah, and well, I think this is one of the strengths of Chambers that he does leave you, at least in the the King and Yellow stories, to infer an awful lot. Yeah, I mentioned on on our Discord server that we were doing these episodes, and and Forrester Gary made the comment that this is why he prefers Chambers over Lovecraft because you know Lovecraft explains everything, Chambers doesn't. And yeah, it strikes me as as being almost you know like say Robert Aikman in that respect in that he'll put all these evocative mm. pieces together and it's up to you to try to find meaning in them. Yeah, I can see a similarity there. I'm not sure Lovecraft explains everything, but yeah, yeah. Um, certainly the two, uh, Aikman and Chambers, in that way that they leave a lot unexplained, definitely uh, in common there. Now, you've studied Gothic fiction, Matt. How much of a parallel do you see between the yellow sign here, uh, you know, the story, and, you know, the classic sort of Victorian or, or earlier than Victorian vengeful ghost stories. A lot of those stories that, with maybe the exception of James, although he is a little later, yeah. uh, mostly writing in the, you know, the early teens and 20s, that those stories have a very defined rationale or meaning behind what's going on in them. Things are generally explained. Whereas this is going into territory where nothing is really explained and that there is a lot of evocative passages with multiple meanings that the reader is supposed to infer what's going on. That breaks the mould a lot. And it shares, on the surface, quite a similarity with potentially the, the style of which it's written, uh, the context, the setting of the pieces. Like the church is a big one there because mm. a lot of Gothic fiction relies on architecture as, uh, for its motifs because it was in common with the Gothic style at the time. So the, there are similarities on the surface, but it's when it really gets to the meat of the weirdness going on in the story, that's where it breaks the mould entirely. I mean, it's a really interesting story to me because it's fundamentally amoral, whereas the classic ghost stories are very much morality tales. Mm -hmm. Well, except I found myself wondering whether it really is. Because if we think about In the Court of the Dragon, it's fundamentally quite a similar tale in that you've got a protagonist who has read The King in Yellow, who is troubled by it, who then starts seeing things that are happening through the lens of, of some of the things that he's seen, but who is being stalked by this sinister figure who he later realises is some kind of representation of someone he killed a while back, and at the end, The King in Yellow comes for him, almost like a demon from hell, to drag him 
off to eternal perdition. But what we don't see obviously in this story is any kind of sin or any kind of wrongdoing on Scott's part. But the commonality that we see between the two stories is guilt. Because, I mean, you were talking about, you know, how much you dislike the romance in this. And the romance at first blush does seem to be extraneous to the overall story. But I, I think there's an argument that is actually quite integral, that perhaps in the same way that we see guilt being the magnet to the king in yellow uh, in The Court of the Dragon, it perhaps is here that Scott is guilty over the fact that he had his one true love, Sylvia, who you know, has been dead for three years, is buried in this far distant graveyard. And now, perhaps even under false pretenses, he has opened his heart to this young girl who he doesn't necessarily feel anything for and has perhaps feels like in the process he's betraying Sylvia's memory and, and is you know, perhaps leading Tessie down a, a path to unhappiness. And so as a result, you know, there, there's got to be a huge ball of guilt there that we never see him directly talk about but just imply... You know, I'm wondering now if the 11th commandment was thou shalt not fall for thy naked teenage model. <laughs> I think, I think that, it was yeah. implicit in there somewhere. Yes. <laughs> uh, but even without that sense of guilt that you talk about, Scott, over Sylvia, I think the fact that the model and the artist fall in love here, and so there's this promise of opportunity of new developments happening in the story that it makes it all the more poignant at the end when they both die, I think. It, mm. you know, if you take that relationship out of the story, it lessens it quite a lot, I think, to me. And they read the play, and also in The Court of the Dragon, they read the play. You know, we, get, we get reference to in several of his stories to them reading The King in Yellow. What do we think that actually reading the story does to you? The experience of reading the play seems to provide a sort of symbology, a language, um, a, a filter through which people who've read it now see reality. So in The Mask, when you know, the protagonist reads The King in Yellow there, and you know, later you know, undergoes a great shock, he starts seeing the pale faces of people around him as being the pallid mask. We see in The Court of the Dragon, the protagonist there sort of sees the manifestation of his guilt at the end as being the king in yellow. He has actually called upon the king in yellow, or whether it's, it's just simply you know, how he sees things. But I mean, it could be that you know, if you took the king in yellow play out of this, the events of the story would perhaps just play the same way, just without some of the... Well, if you took the king in yellow the play out... The King in Yellow himself could still manifest at the end of the story, just as logically, yes. I think. But but what, what the play does is it gives them a language with which to discuss these events. Because we don't get any real description of the content of the book here, do we, in this in this, no. uh, in this story? No, besides the fact they say Act 2 is bad and nothing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It is time now for us to disentangle ourselves from the mists of Carcosa, to step away from the shores of the Lake of Harley, and to come back to reality, to, to all you listeners, and say thank you to each and every one of you. Thank you, especially to everyone who has given us money via Patreon. And we have a few new people to offer even more special thanks to this time. Indeed we do. At the $1 level, we have a big thanks going out to Joshua Certain. Indeed. Thank you very much, Joshua. Yep. Thank you very much, Joshua. And next, our thanks go out to Phil J. So, thank you very much, Phil. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Phil. And we have an extra thanks to offer to Vivian Dunstan, who has gone up in, in pledge level from $1 to $2, which, you know, is, is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Vivian. Hey, thank you, Vivian. And now we come to the $5 level. Huzzah! Oh, what? Oh boy. Oh yes. <laughs> and at the $5 level, we sing our praises to our, our patrons. Uh, and we start off today with a big thank you going out to Stephen Simmons. Indeed. Thank you uh, very much, Stephen. And I hope the uh, European Court of Human Rights don't come after us for what we're about to inflict on you. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Stephen. And uh, yes, good luck. Have you found the Stephen Simmons? 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 Stephen, have you found the yellow sign? Have you thanked the yellow sign? Have you found the Stephen Simmons? Have you?
Thank you. And our next victim of song, really, we should stop using the word song because it's just blatant false advertising. What, what would you call it, Matt? Audio torture. Okay. Yeah. Our next victim of audio torture is Nathan Johnson. So, thank you very much, Nathan. I, I don't see it so much as torture as um, an extreme of experience. Feels like torture to me. We have such <laughs> sounds to make you hear. <laughs> yes. So regardless of, of whether you consider it torture or not, uh, thank you very much, Nathan. And Thank you very much, Nathan. Nathan Meanwhile, on social media, hey, and over on iTunes this time, uh, Soren H in Denmark says. A good listen if you enjoy the world of HP Lovecraft and Call of Cthulhu RPG. Scott, Paul and Matt discuss so many interesting facets of the Lovecraft universe in a way that is both entertaining and enlightening. I've been listening to them since the start, almost six years ago. Have, Christ, have we, have what we a man... Have been doing it for that long? What a, man, what a way to make a man feel old. <laughs> <laughs> Two years as a Patreon backer as well. And every time I receive notification of a new episode, I look forward to listening to it. The option of a Patreon backer to listen to the unedited versions is hilarious. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Highly recommended. Thank you very much, Soren, and we're glad, we're really glad to hear you're enjoying the, the unedited version. I mean, for those of you who haven't heard it, it's an experience, particularly if you're used to hearing the finished versions, the highly polished remixes of the sounds we make that, that <laughs> Paul turns into songs. So you get to hear the delight of the raw version of yeah. the noises we make, which is yeah. quite horrible. Yeah, it's about 20 minutes of us standing around just making the silliest goddamn noises we can think of. Now, Soren, you can roll 60-10 sand loss. <laughs> and we've had some great feedback about our recent episode on realism in role-playing game mechanics. Christine Fisher, on our late lamented G Plus community, wrote a long post that posed some interesting points. We'll split it into two and revisit it in the next episode. She says, When a novel or game demands multiple major points of suspension, especially if they aren't all introduced toward the beginning, I think... That's when reader-player confusion or uncertainty sets in. In role-playing games, that's when nobody knows what they can reasonably expect to be able to do. There's a distraction from the adventure experience in figuring out what your character would know about the world or where they should have confidence and where doubt. That's when player buy-in to that world's reality gets lost. Yeah, I, I think this is a really good insight. There are certainly game worlds we play in or fictional worlds that differ from our reality in, in all sorts of ways. But it's interesting because I think they tend to get built up through layers as genre conventions get defined. And, you know, we're exposed to certain ideas and then someone adds uh, to those ideas and so on. So it feels like a more natural process than suddenly being dumped in at the deep end and trying to work out all sorts of little bits. And it can be quite alienating when you get thrown into something completely out of your experience. I remember actually one of my favourite books, but the first time I read Ursula K. Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness. Fantastic book, but for the first few chapters, you are in this alien world with all sorts of alien terminology, some of which may apply to concepts you're already familiar with, plenty of which apply to things that you aren't. And there's no explanation given for any of it. You're, you're left to infer and, and understand and build up a picture of the world. And this goes on for several chapters. And the first time I read it, I almost gave up on it for that reason, because I found it so overwhelming. But in a book, you have a chance to process that slowly and pick it up and so on. I mean, have either of you ever had the experience of playing a game which relies so much on weird aspects of the world, jargon, odd words and stuff, that you just haven't had a clue what's going oh, on. Oh, definitely. I think that's a very common experience when you sit down at games, mm. which is why when I play games that I'm not familiar with, I kind of like it if it's a starting scenario, starting game, 
presented for player characters that are outsiders if possible so that i'm an outsider to this culture and so is my player character but that's not always possible but if i'm playing a character who's embedded in the setting and should know all about it and i as the player don't that can be pretty difficult over on reddit sly reference posted i agree that the high level of crunch came about from gms who wanted to cut off arguments but i disagree that it's specifically a draw for novice gms I think the appeal to is a certain intermediate level of group that has learned to use rules and rulings to their advantage. Rules wind up like GM armour against rules lawyer paid players. Oh boy. (laughs) Yeah, I've come across a few of them in my time. Um, A way of making constant rulings and of making hard decisions seem objective and out of the GM's control. That's interesting. And uh, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of truth to that. And it's interesting. I mean, there's there's sort of the flip side to that as well. In that Burning Wheel, there's some stuff in there that Luke Crane put in basically as protection for the players from bad GMs. So you have things like, is, is it instincts? I, I, I can't remember. I think it's, it's instincts, which are certain things your character does automatically like you know if you're going into a strange place you automatically have your crossbow loaded or you automatically have your shield up or whatever so that at no point can the gm sort of say well you you didn't tell me you'd loaded your crossbow therefore when you bring it up to fire it just goes click oh and finally uh dr colossus one on reddit said following your mention of the sons of cryos podcast you may already know this, but Judd Coleman has a new show going on the Anchor app called Daydreaming About Dragons. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. I'm in, very interested to, to hear about that. I've listened to a couple of episodes, and it feels very different than Sons of Cryos because it is just Judd on his own. Uh, he doesn't have uh, Jeff Lower with him, or uh, Stormcook joined them with, with later mm. episodes, didn't he? And it is just him talking about, you know, say, games he's working on or things that he's seen online. And it's a much more informal discussion it's more of a monologue it's less produced so it feels much rougher on rora but it's still damned interesting mm. uh, so yes we shall link to that from the show notes mm. so so thank you very much dr classes and now to wrap up what are our final thoughts about the yellow sign yeah, this is a weird story. I mean, Lovecraft rated this as, as his favourite out of, well, certainly the King in Yellow stories and, and out of Chambers's work. I mean, he was quite unkind about Chambers's later work, said that he never quite lived up to this high watermark here. And I agree entirely with him there. I think this is easily the best thing that Chambers ever wrote. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really good story. It's quite an easy one to read as well. It kind of all hangs together Whereas if you compare it with Repair of Reputations, Repair of Reputations, there's a lot more strangeness going on to kind of get your head round. It all requires a bit more thought. Whereas the yellow sign, it's more of a, I don't know, I don't want to say a straight story, but the way it's delivered is very easy to, to read yeah. and, and, and grasp. Well, the Repair of Reputation starts off with that first page or two of alternate history. Yeah, of, um, it's a whole so, other world. Isn't it? yeah. It's not even really set. Whereas this is just set like, almost like in one room well it's not just that but it's the fact that you're getting hit in the face with this whole big wadge of exposition whereas in this you're immediately thrown into the story and lashings of turpentine (laughs) i can imagine the yellow sign the story performed as a play on stage Mm. which is like a handful of actors and maybe just like one scene really yeah, I mean, we'll go into some of the adaptations of Chambers' work in a following episode, but I think it's significant that, you know, we've seen a few adaptations of The Yellow Sign. I think it is, yeah, as you say, probably his easiest work to adapt. And there's one particular version, in fact, probably linked to it from these the show notes as well as the, the other ones, that is on YouTube at the moment, that is just three short episodes, ten minutes or so in total, it is pretty much that. It's just one room. It's, it's three actors. Well, right. two main ones plus someone playing the Watchman, and it's you know really simply done. It's set in the modern day with a photographer instead of a painter. But apart from that, it's basically the same story. Tells it very quickly and simply, and it, it is you know as you say very very effective, very direct. How do you rate it, Matt? Um, yeah, take out the kissing. It wouldn't be half bad. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Too much romance. Uh. <laughs> You're going to hate the rest of Chambers then. Funnily enough, I stopped reading after the demos I use. <laughs> but I mean, how do you rate it against, like, you know, Lovecraft stories and, you know, other people's works of, of weird tale type 
fiction. I'd, I'd definitely put it at the top of the collection for The King in Yellow. Mm. As for Weird Tales in general, yeah, I, I, the, the romance is still a bit of a jarring theme for me, so I'd rank it below the likes of Lovecraft. Right, because I mean, you're a big fan of you know, the whole kind of King in Yellow the thing. Wind, the wider <laughs> mythos, yeah. Yeah, and this yeah. is very much a, a core story to that, so I was just wondering how you <laughs> relate to it. I think it's a, it's a good starting point that's inspired a lot of people, but I do prefer the Hasta mythos that sprung off from it rather than the original story. So, so what you're saying is that you prefer Derlith? I've not read The Return of Hasta. I've read a lot of other stuff <laughs> I, that's come I, off I'm it. going to hold you to this once you've read The Return of Hasta. I'm going to rub your nose in it like a naughty puppy that just shat on the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell. <laughs> I don't know how how that story relates to anything. <laughs> I, I, I no, I've read it a couple really of times. Don't. I don't think it relates to anything mm. anything anyone else has done at all, really. No, but we'll talk about it in a couple of episodes. Uh, well, I it's think... funny how you weird how you equate that with the Call of Cthulhu, Hester and the King and Yellow and everything. But Be- we'll come because, to that because that's the story that brought them together. You mean it's a matchmaker episode? Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. there's going to be more kissing, isn't there? <laughs> Oh, no. No. Slurping, but no kissing. That's all right. Well, until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemoustomes.com Hello?